you saw greatness come out of, of the situation that was kind of dire and people believed and were coming in and so excited. And, you know, we turned the inside of the restaurant into kind of a war room. There was stacks of toilet paper to go, you know, cause we started doing, we went from $0 in to go sales to 60,000 a week in the third week. So that's from flyering. And, and so from there, then the PPP money came in and we were banging the drum outside of our store louder than anybody. So we did 11 national news pieces, 50 local news stories. And basically, you know, I was shocked because a small business guy fighting for his business and his employees became national news. And so we turned it into the best opportunity that it could ever happen for us. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today's guest is Jeff Gigante. A Florida native, Jeff left his home to pursue a performance career in the Big Apple and instead found his passion for hospitality. Convincing his boss at the time to consider the restaurant scene in Tampa, Florida, Jeff soon became a partner in the CCO group. Over the past 25 years, he's developed a diverse collection of restaurant concepts, earning a reputation for hospitality, community involvement, and philanthropy. Today, he is the co-founder of Next Level Brands Hospitality and for BC Modern Italian Restaurant. A partner at Train Up First, Grand Theming Studios, and Human Media Group, Jeff believes in the importance of giving back. Today, Jeff shares lessons for success in entrepreneurship and living a fully engaged life. Well, Jeff, thank you for joining me on InFactor today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. I'm really excited to have you back here on our campus. It's been a few years that we've all been hunkering down, and I know in your industry it's been challenging, so I'm really looking forward to to seeing, uh, well, we've already been seeing you back on campus, yeah, but I'm looking forward to, to, to talking more about you, with you today and, and just kind of catching up. So thanks. Yeah. Thanks again. Sure. So let's get started and let's kind of go back to the beginning. Did you want to be an entrepreneur as a kid? Is this you know, so that, as you know, uh, that wasn't really a word when I was growing up <laughs> right. entrepreneur. Um, so, you know, I wanted to have my own business and I started as early as the age of nine, uh, a buddy of mine, my neighbor, childhood friend, called him Curly. His name's Tim. He'd kill me if I was <laughs> calling him Curly now. But we uh, we we lived in a little apartment complex on the side of a golf course. So we would, Saturday morning, we would collect all these golf balls, polish them up all day Saturday. I'd beg my mom to go to Publix and get me some Czech sodas. And, um, and we would set up shop on like the fourth hole, which was a little bathroom area with our cart and selling three golf balls and a soda for $3 and six golf balls and a soda for five. <laughs> and so this is back in the, you know, dating myself, the late seventies, early eighties, we were making two, $300 a Sunday. And, um, when you're not doing something illegal and you have a bunch of cash under your mattress, you're, you're doing something right. So at that very early age, I got bit by that, have an idea cultivate the idea, execute the idea, and then reap the rewards. And so that was stuck in my mind at age 10. 
And so from there, when the Rangers finally caught up with us and explained to us the fact that that was private property and the balls we were selling back to their customers were theirs, <laughs> so we couldn't keep the money. So we got the, uh, that first business went bankrupt early on, but uh, I rebounded by just selling whatever I could at school out of my backpack. I would do the little cinnamon toothpicks or the spearmint toothpicks. And, you know, toothpicks, you can buy a bazillion of them for $3 at any grocery store, soak them in the cinnamon oil or the spearmint oil, and I'd sell 20 for $2 or 10 for a dollar. And so I was making 15 to $25 a day out of my backpack. And when my mom was giving me a lot of grief about my grades and needing to improve them, I'm like, Mom, I'm making more money than the teacher's pro rata. <laughs> so, again, she explained to me that uh, she didn't mind as much that if I gave my best effort and weren't getting good grades, but not giving effort and getting bad grades was unacceptable. Right, right. School was important, too. But, you know, one of the things that I I I'm thinking about as you tell your story is how you learn to add value right from the beginning. Yes. So that's a you know that value added lesson. What a, what a powerful lesson to learn at an early yeah, so age. So I became president of that little two man company because it was my idea to double the actual product with the value at a, at a savings. And you know back in the day, all the golfers had five dollar bills, so they weren't you know no one was taking the three dollar deal. So I quickly uh, took the top spot in that company. And um, yeah, the value again. That's what uh, business is, right? It's the value exchange, perceived value. Mm -hmm. And as long as the the value you're giving is more than the cost, you're going to have tremendous success. Yeah. Well, so you started out. Uh, mom kept you in school for a while, yeah. right? Oh, so, yeah. So what? Tell us a little bit. How how did you get into your? You, you've got next level brands now, but yes. I know that that there's been Chicho Restaurant, a group, lot of things, correct, yeah. yes, that along the way. There, so, so I actually. Um, Again, being bit at that early age, I was always entrepreneurial and doing car washes and, you know, selling knives door to door, um, books, uh, coupon cards. So, you know, throughout my life, I realized if I had a product, I could learn product knowledge, create my spiel and basically, you know, sell my way to financial freedom. So I was doing that all along. And my, fresh, uh, my, my senior year of college, we saw some guys opening up a pizzeria. So I went to my room and I was like, look, these guys don't seem to be too bright. And they're, this is the second pizzeria and they're doing tremendous amounts of sales. We should do that. And so we borrowed $30,000 from a childhood friend of ours that was wealthy. And we opened up our own pizza place my senior year at Florida State. And that was my true education. You know, trying to understand how to do the build out. We did everything ourselves, just hiring local handymen and, and, um, you know, the biggest challenge came, you know, our, our plan was so my partner's father was an immigrant from Italy that had opened up many Italian restaurants in the state of Florida and had tremendous success. So our goal was, okay, we'll do everything. Two weeks before we open, we'll have your dad come and teach us absolutely everything we need to know about how to make the pizza and how to do the sauce and how to cook the vegetables and cook the, the, the proteins. Great idea. So we go through the entire build out. Two weeks before the opening, I say, Mike, go call your pop. He comes back with this ghostly white face. And I was like, that's not a good look. And he goes, my dad got deported to Italy last Tuesday. Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? So this is back when phones were not smart. 
They were not smartphones. Um, I won't say the opposite of that, but that's pretty much where they were. And when I speak to the kids, I, you know, I get a big laugh out of that. So he said, you know, that was a great, you know, we gave it our best effort. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We, we need to open this place. We're down to the last, we've used all this money from our friend. I mean, what are we going to do? Just give up now? And so really, in a nutshell, that's entrepreneurship. Like our legs were completely taken out from us there. So our entire business plan, if you will, fell down the drain. And, you know, you couldn't Google anything that didn't exist at this mm-hmm. time. This was 1990. So unless you're going to go to a library, check out a book on baking pizza, I said, Mike, where is your dad in Italy? Oh, he's at my Aunt Glenda's. I was like, well, does Glenda have a phone? Sure. Get the number. That night we spent seven hours on a $640 phone call to Italy and learned to make everything by phone. We had all of our ingredients. We had everything that we needed. And he you know, went from the, the mixer. And as the dough was rising, he took us into the kitchen and said, okay, you have oil, put it in the pan, you lightly bread, egg, flour. And we went through everything. And we spent seven hours on the phone with uh, his father and learned how to make everything. And so our opening was saved. We opened up super busy. And that was like a, a real lesson in overcoming adversity. And so the thing with entrepreneurship, as you well know, is it's not a matter of if, it's when. Adversity, challenges, obstacles, failures, they're coming for you like a freight train. It's how you deal with each one of those that creates your entire culture of how you handle challenges. I love, love, love that story. You know, I've spent a lot of years studying the competencies of entrepreneurs, what it is that sets entrepreneurs apart. And last year, I published a book, which I call See, Do, Repeat. And it's the ability to see opportunities, which you did, uh, the willingness to take action, which you did, and the resilience to execute past failure, which you figured out. So, you know, I was going to ask you when you said that he left what your plan B was, and you figured it out. You figured out another way to make it happen. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't about, um, you know, giving up. I mean, you didn't, you no. didn't accept that failure was an option at that point, but, but um, you had to pivot. You had to change. And well, yeah, I learned, I learned a great lesson there because, you know, my partner, that was it for him. We'd done everything right. We did everything we could. But now this was the big failure. And this was kind of like the crux in our business. Well, we can't make the food without knowing how to make the food. So, you know, it was so for me, I was like, OK, you got to choose your partner super well. And um, and, you know, this person took a thirty thousand dollar risk on my name. I was going to die before I didn't give every opportunity to make this thing a success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a very uh, another very wise entrepreneur told me once that business is about making and keeping commitments. And that's what I hear in what yes, saying. Yes, 100 percent. Yep. So t- so fast forward, uh, you're here in yes. Tampa with Next Level Brands. You've yes. got a number of different restaurants. You do a, you do a lot more than hospitality now. Yes, I so, do. So tell us a little bit about your journey. What brought you to Tampa? Are you? Are yeah. You- so so I guess if there is such a thing as a serial entrepreneur, that's me. And I just love the hustle and grind of taking a concept 
from a very tiny little iota and then creating the the who, what, where, when, and how of that. So I, 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 I was actually raised in St. Petersburg. So a lot of people think, oh, you're from New York. Well, no, I, I was born in New Jersey, moved to St. Pete at a very young age, grew up there, went to Florida State, then went to New York to get into business. And that business was going to be acting. I was studied at college for acting for the camera and film and all this great stuff. And, you know, somewhere in my mind, I realized at a very early age in my young 20s, because I had the pizzeria experience. So I was bit by that bug, like, oh my God, this was unbelievable. We created this concept. So when I went to New York to act, I was waiting tables. So I got with a very successful group of uh, brothers that had like five of the hottest restaurants in New York City. And I was I started as a food runner, as you know, lowest position. I, well, the busboy's the lowest, but I was one step up from that because, you know, I had this supreme confidence, as I like to call, call it, which was, you know, not really having the knowledge or experience to know any better. But I was very sure that I could be the first in, last to leave and outwork everybody in the room. And, you know, that was a lesson taught to me by my grandfather and my mom at very young ages saying, you know, schooling's important and everything, but it's really how you show up. It's your work ethic that's going to make the life for you. So I had that. I got hired as a food runner and then slowly worked my way up to a server and then a head server and then an assistant manager. And, and um, I really loved it. And as I was acting and waiting tables and working in hospitality, I realized that, you know, I, I, I was married young. I married my college sweetheart and I wanted to lay down roots and have a family. But then as I saw the, my, my colleagues in acting started, okay, I got this movie. I'm going to Vancouver for six months. I'm going to LA for pilot season. I'm filming a movie down in, and I was thinking, how am I going to do this with a family, a wife, child, and I'm going to be flying all over. I'm going to, it's going to make me miserable. So I pivoted at an early age and realized, you know what? I love this hospitality thing. It, allow, it, it hits all the you know, check boxes for me. And so I, I talked with my owner then. Um, he was my boss. And I pitched him on Tampa. We were getting a new stadium. The town was coming alive, very, uh, very simultaneous to what's happening right now. A lot of my friends had graduated college in their professional lives, so they would come to the restaurant. And I wanted to do that restaurant that we had opened there together. Well, I worked for him. He opened it, and it was super successful. And I actually was, as an opening, I was the baker. I did the pizza and bread for that restaurant because of my background in Florida. And so I, I got to see that opening and the excitement of that. And I was just, I mean, that was it. I was done for. I loved it, and I wanted to make that my life. And so I had formulated this plan, and I pitched it to him fully thinking he was going to be like, what are you talking about? You don't have any money. You have no real financial backing. And you've had one restaurant that by that time it had shut. It had failed because I had left. And so all these great lessons came on. But he said, you know, I'm not going to commit to anything, but I'll take a trip at your expense down to Tampa and you can show me that town. So I put on the works. I had my friends and their fathers take us around and show us everything. And he ended up seeing what I saw, which was tremendous wide open potential and really nobody aggressively doing like how he opened businesses in New York with his brothers and his partners. And, you know, they just absolutely were the pinnacle there. So 
I figured, oh my God, I got this start. Because our whole deal was he was to come down, move down with me, teach me everything for three months, and then move back to New York to all his restaurants. Well, he's still here 25 years later. So, but I didn't know that he'd been looking to kind of set out on his own and, and, you know, kind of break off from his brothers, you know, no bad blood there really, but he wanted to do it on his own. He was the eldest of the brothers. The father was an icon of industry in, in New York city. So lots of spotlight on him. And he was, you know, also looking very closely at the brothers. So he wanted to kind of pioneer himself off on his own. So it all kind of worked kismet together because I could have never done it without him at that time. If he would have gone back after three months, who knows what would have happened. But it was, I was waiting table still at that time, three months later, when he sat down with me and said, I'm going to stay and we're going to open more restaurants. So Forbitchy actually is my 26th restaurant opening. Wow. Yeah. So that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm excited. Number 27 and 28 are getting ready to open later this year. That's fantastic. So it's under Next Level Brands, which is my own moniker and my own brand. And, you know, we split up ways back in 2018. It was as amicable as a 25 year partnership could be. You know, he didn't get exactly what he wanted. I didn't get exactly what I wanted, but we both walked away with some respect and love. It was fair. And, um, you know, it was. It was like a divorce, really. It was, you know, I'd built my, my life's work there, but they were moving in a direction that was not my passion. And one morning at breakfast, my wife's like, you know, you're not happy. You've got to be fulfilled. We're not doing this for money now. Money's fine. We're fine. Go do what you love and, you know, the money will come. And so she kind of really helped me make that decision. To, you know, I went to my partner. I was like, look, this hasn't been fulfilling. He's like, yeah, I've seen it for the last couple of years. I was like, well, you could have let me know. And he's like, you don't see me around here. This isn't my dream. Because at that point, we'd gone from one restaurant to 20-something, 1,550 employees, 50 limited partners. So it was a big company. But they were kind of focusing on fast food and grab and go, the fresh kitchens, taco dirties, all those great concepts, which wasn't my passion. I never wanted to open 50 of one concept. You know, it's great for money. But for me, I'm a full-service experiential type guy. I love watching people make memories in your establishment. So that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I'm doing now. And it's my dream. That's amazing. So there's so much in there I want to talk about. Yeah. Let, let, let's start. Uh, let's start by talking a little bit about partnerships, because a lot of our listeners may be contemplating that or they may already be in a partnership. And I know I personally had a really rough experience with the partnership. And mm-hmm. uh, so it, it, it is kind of like marriage. It can be really wonderful or it sure can, can be very painful. So so talk a little bit about what what you would, you know, what you learned and what you might share with someone who's contemplating a partnership. So early on, um, you know, my first partnership with the pizzeria at Florida State, who's still one of my best friends to this day, but we just have a different mindset of how we look at the partnership responsibilities and duties and broken out. We were both kind of strong in the same area. That was also a huge lesson for me, which is when choosing a partner, I think you need to fill in your weaknesses with that partner or at least your likes and dislikes. So the, the, the second partnership I did with my, my co-founder of Chicho Restaurant Group, you know, he was super financially uh, stable and deep 
and then really savvy. I mean, he was an accountant by trade, so he understood the entire back end of where that's how we kind of went kerplunk in Tallahassee is we had no idea about the back of house and accounting and, you know, the prime costs and all those things. I learned that working for him. And so, and he also had worked very hard for, for years at that time and wasn't looking to put in hundred hour weeks. So he needed somebody who was willing to kind of say, look, teach me. I've saved up X amount of money. I'll get other investment for X amount of money. I need this from you. But then, you know, I'm happy to do all the work as long as you guide me. And so it was really a good balance. And I just say, you know, in general, when I talk to uh, students, you have to understand, you know, the EQ is so much more important than IQ. You need to look in the mirror and say, okay, I'm good at this, this, and this, but I, I don't like and I'm not great at this, this, and this. So I need to find a partner that fills in those spots and understand that those duties are going to be split. And even if I disagree with those skill sets that they're bringing, I need to back off and trust. And so that's the hugest lesson that I could say when choosing a partner is outside of the fact of memorialize everything. Because I've also learned that when money gets involved, people have selective memory and things go sideways very quickly. Because when you're starting out everything and yeah, we're going to be 50-50 and we're going to make these decisions together and, and this was my idea and I named the company. Okay, that's cool. But then as soon as money's involved magically, you're like, well, no, no, I think I named the company. And so it never hurts. And I say this all the time in the, in the classroom setting is that whenever you guys have this amazing brainstorming session and have come up with that nucleus of the idea, just type out your version in a paragraph form of exactly what happened, who said what, your Uncle Denny's going to loan us this amount of money and we're going to pay him back at this percentage rate, but that still goes to our collective shares. Is this how you remember it? This is how I remember it. They receive it. They go through it, maybe make a few notes. But you have that as the beginning of what your business plan is going to be. So there's never any selective memory loss where people are like, wait a second, that's not exactly at all what I said. You know, I said that if this thing became successful, then I'd have 60%, you'd have 40%. And so the more you can memorialize those early conversations and agreements, the less headache there is because you'd be like, look, on March 13th, 2022, this was the email sent to you and oh, look, you responded and you agreed with everything except for that point and that point. Then I responded. And I agreed with those last two points on your side. That's so great There's really advice. nothing. Yeah. So, I mean, that is the, the, the number one advice on partnership. And you know what? It's easy to do, but also very hard. <laughs> well, it can be awkward and it yeah. can be, but, but, you know, how I always pit it and I, how I tell the, the kids is, look, I'm sending you this email for your protection because I just want to make sure I understood with clarity exactly what we talked about because we were so excited. And then, you know, we went and got a few beers and I just want to be clear. So can you help me just, uh, you know, uh, edify if this is exactly what it was? And so this way you take the awkwardness out of it. But let me tell you, you know what really gets awkward is if you don't have those discussions or piece of paper and you have a massive successful business and then lawyers get involved and you start giving a lot of your profits away, 
that's way more awkward that's than painful. that first conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, and uh, you know, you can you can be on you can be on very different pages and not realize it until an opportunity arises, say, to sell the company, and one of you intended to grow it ten times bigger, and yeah. the other one's like, "No, I'm satisfied. Let's and take the money." Then you've got a real problem. And to and deal I with. even tell you know I tell the students, look, I don't even think there's a lot of malintent at those times. I think that people in their own mind could hear things differently. That's why it's so integral that you guys just kind of square away exactly what was said. And you could even do it in bullet points. You're going to do A, B, C, and D. I'm going to do E, F, G, and H. And then we're going to hire someone else to do all these other things. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That sounds good. Then this way, there's really no room for debate down the line. You can say, well, we, we have these emails. Remember, this is how we set the company up. Now that we have this big payday coming in, let's just make sure that we're honoring the inspiration of this business. And, you know, I'm guessing just like in any partnership, marriage, anything, communication along the way, because people do change their mind, things change. And so you have to constantly revisit yes. where you're headed. Yeah, you? yeah, you do. And, and you know, that comes down to, in, in today's day and age with legal Zoom and all these amazing, you, know, you can have a boilerplate operation agreement. And that that is basically what email I'm talking about. It just basically tells you, A, how you're getting into the business, B, how you're going to get out of it if there's ever to be a sale or a death or a change of mind, and then how you guys are going to conduct yourself based on major decisions. And you know, it's a $500 document that is worth 100 or 100,000 times its weight when it's ever tested. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so like, you know, that's why there's great books out there on business plans and, and you know, the, the who, what, where, when, and why of your business really is your business plan. You know, you need to understand projections and, and costs and prime costs and all these things that are basically the sausage, if you will, of how you're going to operate and execute your idea. Absolutely. Great, great advice. Now, you you talked about your uh, first, not your first, but your second partner, your, your New York partner. Yes. As someone who really was very experienced, you yes. came in and did a lot of work. That's probably a common uh, relationship for a, a younger uh, person in particular who's, yeah, who's you've entering got, an you, industry. Yeah, you've got your 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 blood, sweat, and tears really to right. give. You know, a lot of people start out without financial means. I came from very humble beginnings. You know, my mom told me at an early age, she's like, I can barely afford to feed you guys. So college, you, you know, I want you all to go, but you're gonna have to figure that out and we'll get you loans and grants and all that stuff. And um, so at, at that early age, I had, you know, the the sweat of my brow and, and, and the work off of my back, which was, you know, I... I I worked very, very hard. I had four jobs when I was in New York City, working 100 hours a week, making a great living. But, you know, you had to do that if you wanted to not be below poverty level there. Right. It's an expensive place. Oh, man, it was crazy. Yeah. yeah my, my spacious 600-square-foot apartment was $2,700 back in 1992, 93. So you can only imagine, you know, what that was like. But, um, yeah, so so – that partnership was just perfect for me because he understood the dynamics of the financial burden better so than me. 
told me specifically, if you want this, you've got to bring this. And we don't care where it comes from, but that's going to be your part. And even, you know, I had, I had set up somebody to loan me that money and it fell through at the last second. So I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have a fraction of what I wanted here. And he, and in, in his great form, stepped up and said, no, no, you've shown me, I'm loaning you this money, you can pay me back. And so wow. he wanted, that's when I knew like, okay, so we have similar trust and he sees my value exchange of that, you know, I'll kill myself, just tell me exactly how to do this and you will never have to worry. I'm honest, I'm loyal, I'm hardworking, work ethic's unbelievable, great with relationships, you know, all my strengths that I talk about. And for him, you know, he, he could have very easily said, well, I'm going to take that extra, you know, 20% or whatever, since you can't come up with that money. And, um, but he, he, he made sure that I had that. And that was really smart on his part. 100%. 100%. (laughs) Given what he was trying to achieve and, and recognizing that, you know, uh, as I'm listening to you talk, I think about things like working really hard and being coachable as a young entrepreneur. I think those can go a long way, especially if you find a mentor that, that has a lot of expertise and experience to share. So I I mentor tons and tons of students out of this university and USF and FSU. And the, our first sit down is this, my time is my most valuable commodity. The second I see that you waste it, by just not paying attention or taking, you know, you asking me for specifics, I give them to you and then you just discard. We're going to make slot for somebody who really wants to, you know, be a part of that. And so, you know, of course they've all been great. And, and I still, to this day, I mean, they're, they're successful businessmen and women now, so it's not like I mentor them, but they still come to me for counsel saying, okay, I grew too quickly. I'm getting fired by people now. And I was like, well, <laughs> let's take a look at this and let's rework this. And, and so to be coachable when you have a successful, thriving business is a huge, huge characteristic of success, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because you're always looking at people that have just been down that road before, have had more lumps and knocks than you've had. And, you know, that's why I tell the students, I was like, when, you know, my big takeaway for them, because I'm so desperate to bring value for them is like, look, you know what industry you're studying. You're in this thriving metropolis of Tampa, this exploding market in many different levels, tech and financial, whatever that industry is, just look around the town and find people that are absolutely killing it in that industry and then get on their docket. Buy them a 15-minute Starbucks, whatever you do. But when you do get granted that sit-down, do not go in and try to blow them up about all their success. Ask them when they wanted to quit. When things got so bad, when you couldn't make payroll, how did they turn it around? Or where did they find the fortitude to continue to go forward? That's where you're going to start hitting on them, getting them excited about, oh my God, I remember these days and that was unbelievable. And because anyone can talk about all the adulation and all the successes and, you know, we do this much money and we do this, but to find the pearls of wisdom of when they question themselves and, you know, how do we do that? Because really success is just getting up one more time than failure knocks you down. Mm -hmm. Because as you guys know, being successful, you're constantly the wheels are coming off. You've got to figure it out. And so the people that figure that out the best and pivot in that kind of direction to where they find tremendous success, those are the stories you want to hear. You know, um, 
I'd like to turn that around and ask you because sure. you must have had a few challenges along the way. And I, I couldn't agree more with your assessment that, you know, everything about entrepreneurship, I think, is about learning. Yeah. Because you're always learning about your industry. You're learning about your opportunity. You're learning how to execute. And then you're learning how to get past those big boulders sure. that, that get um, in your path uh, along the way. So. Right. Do you have a few stories? Uh, or I do. I do. So um, the so I'll give you two. The first one was with my previous group, the the Chicho Restaurant Group. We were growing so quickly. My my co-founder, his two sons, who were babies when we started, had grown up into the business as bright young men, wanting to leave their mark. So we were growing fast and furious. With my co-founder and myself kind of as the guides. Well, something, you've heard the statement, too big to fail. Okay, so that does not exist. <laughs> so we were getting really big and we had chose two new locations side by side in Sarasota. One for Fresh Kitchen, our, our upstart kind of um, golden child, you know, fast, casual, grab and go, farm to table kind of bowl place. And then Daily Eats, our great diner right there on Howard, and, you know, every, you know, breakfast all day. So we chose this area and we all looked at it. It really didn't fall on any one of us. And we thought this was a tremendous area. Well, Daily Eats was almost a $2 million failure that we ended up having to close and pay off, you know, a, a big personal guarantee. And that was 20 restaurants in. All these smart guys had been through all this but one slipped past the goalie. And in hindsight, looking at it, I mean, I look at myself and I was like, what? I was just like in some kind of a stupor. I was not being focused because I looked at it now and it made perfect sense to me why it would never work. It's a breakfast concept primarily and lunch in a, in a shopping mall where your tenancy didn't even open until noon. So like you're... Breakfast part starts at 6 a.m. Well, there's nobody even remotely in the area. And it was a business district. It wasn't near residential. It was like all the cardinal mistakes. And so that year, so we ended up closing that in like June, July, paying dollars. And, you know, everybody who owned a percentage was reliable for the percentage of the big check that had to pay. So it was painful on every level. And I, having come from not a lot, it was a lot of money for me. So that really stung me. And so fast forward to December, we're having this big, beautiful, you know, leaders Christmas party at Ocean Prime in a room. I mean, you know, th th that dinner alone must have cost more than my kitchen expense of my first restaurant. So for me, like I'm always looking going, oh, my God, look at how big this bill is. Even though we could afford it and the company was doing good and we were growing. And so, you know, my... my partners, my co-founders, the future and how great everything is and we've got fresh kitchens opening and we're going to be doing these and that. And one after the other, they had these very inspiring stories. So they asked me kind of being the senior, you know, leader in the room to say a few things. And I got up and said, we lost $2 million this year. We made a bad decision, a hasty decision. We were not focused. And our eye came off the ball for that very short period of time, and 50 people lost their jobs. 
A lot of people lost hard-earned investment dollars. We let down a landlord. We had to negotiate away. We sold equipment that we had bought six months prior for pennies on the dollar. We took a big hit. And I want everyone in this room to understand that our success cannot be taken for granted. And so it was a little bit of a bummer, you know, kind of bringing everybody down. But I felt it was my duty as the guy who'd been kicked in the knees and kicked in the teeth many, many times over. I wanted them to understand that every successful Fresh Kitchen and Cali and all these stores that were going so well, those are tremendous opportunities and tremendous gifts that we've got. Because there's a Daily Eats that no one would have ever thought in a second that it would not do well. And we had to go through the pain and embarrassment of closing that store down. So that was one. The second one, so I jump off out of CRG. I split myself off, take my chips off the table, and I go to start my new company, my first big restaurant in a very visible Hyde Park corner And seven months into my run, where things are like, oh, my God, everything's amazing, the world shuts down. And so I'm stared in the face, and I'll never forget it. I was with my family. We were in the Keys on spring break, March 13th to the 20th. So around the 16th, 17th, I start to see on the national level for my industry, oh, my God, this is going to be a shutdown. The government's already talking about it. They just don't know exactly you know, how long it's going to be. So we get out of there. We leave early and come home because I hear it in my leader's voice at, at Forbici. They're all scared. You know, a lot of them young with families and, and you know, the, the wives are freaking out at home. And, you know, my son's got challenges. I, you know, we got to keep him out, you know, because at that point, you don't know if it's a plague that's going to kill tens of millions of people. It was early on. But I remember I said, I want to have a big meeting. We had a meeting after lunch, and I sat everybody down, and we went around the table. There was five of us. And even my partner, all five, I think we need to shut down. My wife's scared. My child's, you know, uh, challenged. We got to shut down. The staff is already saying, you know, because a lot of our staff were UT students. Well, those parents were like, you're coming home. So all the way around the room, and it got to me, and I said, okay. We are not closing down. I said, but the good news is I'm not making any of you work. You all can claim unemployment, go home, and you'll get benefits, and I'll pay you the difference of what you're making now out of our little war chest because I'd I'd been blessed to not give a big distribution I was about to. So I was sitting on a little bank balance, and I knew PPP was coming, and we were going to do all this stuff. But I had had my, you know, I had talked with my wife, and I was conceptualizing what I was going to do because we were, you know, we're a pizza and pasta restaurant set up perfectly for takeout, comfort food. And I knew I wanted to feed the first responders. So that was my first campaign. I called, I didn't call, on my social media, I put out a a plea of all my great customers that have been supporting us. If any of you want to help and don't know how, please make donations to me because I'm going to start feeding all of the area hospitals, ER staffs, the nurses, the fire department, the police, the people that are putting themselves at risk to keep us safe. I'm going to start feeding them. And I only have X amount of dollars. So I had like, I think at that time I'd calculated I had 16 weeks worth of not making any money at all that I could run and then be completely out. But I, you know, planned about it. And, I, you know, I, I went back to my first pizzeria days and we printed up 
20,000 flyers of our menu with a coupon, put a little, pinched a hole in it, put a rubber band, and I told all my servers, come in in your Forbitchy shirt, I'm gonna pay you $10 cash an hour, and you're gonna put these flyers on every single door within five miles of this restaurant. And we are going to, del- you know, not deliver, but we're gonna sell takeout. So, because at that time, Mayor Castor with our wonderful governor, had said, you've got to close down indoor dining. And even outdoor dining, like you couldn't seat people and wait on them. You could do takeout, but we hadn't even started our takeout. So we created a new menu and did, you know, all this crazy stuff. I remember going home one night early on and my wife was in tears. I was like, what's wrong? She goes, there's no toilet paper anywhere in this city. (laughs) I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, I went to three Publixes. They're out. And a lady actually took the only four pack that I had out of my hands. And so I was like, wait a second. So I call up my paper supplier and he's like, Jeff, I'm looking at 600 cases of 60 rolls of Scott towel. How many do you want? I said, send me 30. So I got 1800 rolls of, of, toilet paper. I gave three big cases to my wife. So she had like 200 and she made little baskets for all her girlfriends that she would drive around and give it to them in a little forbitchy bag with a menu on it. And so we started to give a roll of toilet paper wrapped in our forbitchy paper, our logoed pizza paper. And I had all the servers right on there from the bottom of our hearts to your family's bottom as like a <laughs> gift for people who were ordering $30 more. So we gamified the entire thing. And I got them to start to believe because that first social media plea, we had $11,000 donated the first day of people saying, I'll give a thousand, I'll give 500. What do you need? And then I started putting in all these big catering orders in the kitchen because you could see the life had gone out of everybody. They didn't know how long they were going to have a job. But when I started putting in big orders, 200 meals, 400 meals, they started to pep up. And I was like, guys, we're going to make this. And so what I was able to do is cement my culture and create disciples of our brand. And these people were just, you know, you saw greatness come out of, of the situation that was kind of dire. And people believed and were coming in and so excited. And, you know, we turned the inside of the restaurant into kind of a war room. There was stacks of toilet paper to go, you know, because we started doing, we went from $0 in to-go sales to 60000 a week in the third week. So that's from flyering. And, and so from there, then the PPP money came in and we were banging the drum outside of our store louder than anybody. So we did 11 national news pieces. 50 local news stories. And basically, you know, I was shocked because a small business guy fighting for his business and his employees became national news. And so we turned it into the best opportunity that it could have ever happened for us. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So those are two, two failure amazing. stories that were turned into wins. Yeah, two amazing stories. I mean, I, I'm almost speechless after after hearing that. You know, we had, uh, Jermaine and I had several people through the pandemic talking about how they managed to survive. And so as I'm listening to you tell both stories, the first one, the humility there and remembering that, you know, to remain humble. And that's because that's, you know, every that's such win an you get is part. such a gift. And there's there's bigger things than just you at play there. 
Right. You know, so so that that was the biggest, you know, message I wanted to get across there is that, yeah, we're having this abundant success. But guys, we just had a massive failure four months ago. Let's not all rah rah on the potential wins, but understand we've got to navigate the waters to avoid the losses. Right. And then and then after 25 successful years as a restaurateur, you go out on your own <laughs> and then all of a sudden the wheels come yeah, off. Yeah, you get you get another lesson handed yes. to you. Right. But um, as I think we talked about before the podcast, uh, it's important not to let uh, let a good crisis go to waste. That's so right? true. You're right. Those so you manage to find a creative way to um, to to deal with that. And your employees were all essential through that time. Everyone, absolutely. They were essential workers. But not only that, you know, it's amazing. Um, The human spirit is amazing. And in times of crisis is when true character is revealed. So once we started doing the toilet paper thing, I started thinking, what other value can I give my customers? Because I need them to order multiple times a week. They can't just order once or twice. And so I reached out to my vendors Peroni Beers, J.J. Taylor. I called them. They're like, I said, hey, will you do like a a buy one, get one? And they're like, Jeff, we're sitting on so much beer. How about this? For every one case, I'm going to give you five cases of beer. Well, that doesn't exist in the normal world. But what that did for me was, oh, my God, we're giving a six-pack of Peroni beer with every order over $30. So you know what that does to social media? It goes wildfire. And people are like, oh, my God, we were giving bottles of wine away, cases of water, all because my vendors, every time I'd reach out, they'd be like, not only will we do that, we'll do this. Thank you for being a voice out there. My partner, you know, because we have live music at 4Bitchy. It's one of our our little gimmicks that actually really works. Well, we had to shut it down. We weren't open. Right. So he said, what if we got like one of our younger musicians to just sit out there on the patio and play for the people picking up their to-go food? So we did that. And, you know, of course, I called him. I'm like, Zach, listen, what are you doing? He goes, I had to get out of my apartment. I'm living back home with my my parents in St. Pete. I was like, well, are you playing anywhere? He goes, Jeff, well, I'm playing in my room. I was like, would you come? I was like, no, I can't pay you. What He goes, look, give me $50. I will come play for three or four hours just to get out of the house and have a place to go. Well, he was making double his normal money from the tips of the customers coming up just so happy to see something. And by the end of that six, seven week shutdown, people were bringing pool chairs to sit on the sidewalk and listen to him play. And it was just one of these things where, you know, that's where innovation comes in. And as long as, you know, that's why I like, I've got a funny thing about competition. People are always like, oh, Timpano's opening up again. Are you worried about the competition? I was like, there's only one me. No one competes with me. I'm inside my own head. No one understands what I'm going to do. And there's plenty of business to go around. I mean, you know, they opened up and I was like, yeah, it's going to hurt probably 10, 12% will drop. We went up 10% once they opened. They brought that much more people. And so, you know, there's, um, I call it competitive cannibalism, where the more good businesses in a certain area starts to bring more people to the area and your business goes down the street maybe or they come with you or you get a little bit of theirs and and everybody starts to do better. 
the whole tide. Everybody rise with yep, the tide. Yep, exactly. That's tide, right. right. Rising tide raises all yeah, boats. Yeah, exactly. Now that there's a lot, there's a lot in that, and this idea of leaning in uh, during a crisis as opposed to retrenching. You know, I've I've seen in the hospitality industry uh, uh, that most business, and and I think this is probably true in a lot of other. Um, industries, but hospitality was hit so hard by by the pandemic. And what I've seen after that is is sort of two distinct ways to 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 deal with it. One is more aligned with what you're saying, and that is leaning in, being creative, finding new ways to bring value to your customers. The other is more of a retrenching, mm-hmm. and and um, it's really interesting to see that because yeah. there's I've seen a number of successful um, restaurants that have they cut their menu way back and they've never gone back. They've they stopped the music during the pandemic and yeah. they've never added it back yet. Right, and, um, and there's a lot of places such a different have, approach. Well, I think that. Rebecca, that that is the difference in being an independent minded or corporate minded, because a lot of those big corporations, the publicly traded companies, they were weathering, you know, and and when this one restaurant was only a small part of their makeup of companies, even though one size doesn't fit all, their policy went across all of their brands. So the ones that it really was a sufferance for, they didn't care. They said, this is what we're doing. We can't individually make all these different rules and then try to monitor them. That That's like the death of, uh, of a big corporation, publicly mm-hmm. traded company like that. But it changed the the components and the the personality of their concepts. And, you know, it's happened with several restaurants in, in town that, you know, Again, for us, because we were very public and very loud about what we were doing, we gained market share from some of these places that kind of shrunk a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, so it benefited us, but it did hurt a lot of those places that were enjoying wild success when the company's like, okay, no more live music. We can't afford that. Um, we're now going to no service. You're going to be ordering from an iPad at a table. Which, you know, for me, like I've got serious thoughts about hospitality and experiential dining. And people don't want to, I mean, they're already on their devices too much. They want to talk with someone and someone goes, listen, you've got to have the fish tacos. They're amazing tonight. And if you if you would, order it with this Casamigos margarita. It's so delicious. Well, a computer's never going to tell you that. Yeah, yeah. It's going to show you, here's a Casamigos margarita and look at the fish tacos. You know, I'm one of those people. I always ask the the server, "What, what do, do you, you like?" <laughs> yes, that's so good. And, yeah, I mean, I I love that interaction yeah. with the server as well. You know, I know technology's been important for the mm-hmm. hospitality industry. It has. Do, you know, do you have any thoughts about? I do. That? So for me, I think it's a great tool and it's supplemental, but it should never take the heart and soul. Like your technology does has no soul. The the server waiting on you. With whatever hardships she or, or he has gone through, that personality, that little twinkle in their eye, you can't get that from technology. It should be a great tool. Now, they should have it in their hand and be able to say, okay, well, look look at these specials. They're unbelievable. We've got this great short rib, and we're doing a gnocchi carbonara, and oh, my God, tempura cauliflower. He does it just right with a white sauce. You know, you got to get excited. getting hungry. How about yeah, you, Yeah, those are our specials for <laughs> April, by the way. I'm just telling you, real special. And I get so excited about them, I tell everybody, and they're on my social media today, actually. But that's the beautiful thing of connection. Like, we're making memories for people. 
At Fresh Kitchen, you'd have eight minutes to wait in line, get your bowl, and then out the door. There's not much of a memory there. You had a great bowl of food for a great value, and it was delicious. But very rarely are you connecting with somebody as you do in a full-service dining, experiential-type concept. You know, you actually make friends, or you might meet a partner or a business partner or whatever. That's the magic of hospitality. We welcome you into our home. We treat you as if you're family for us. And then we send you on your way. Hopefully, you'll go tell your friends and you'll come back. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I love that. And, you know, I just read something in the Wall Street Journal. I think it was this past weekend. And, you know, just talking about this whole issue of how um, th- this connectedness that we just don't get through technology and how technology kind of leaves us exhausted. It gives us a lot of um, opportunity to achieve a lot that we might not have otherwise, but but it doesn't renew us like connecting with people and being out in nature and experiencing things. See, um, the American people are the most resilient people on the planet, in my humble opinion, having been an American person for 50 plus years. During COVID is when I built my proposal deck for Next Level Brands and went out and raised my money to build these next two massive restaurants I'm building because I believed after the suffrage that was happening in this shutdown and the grief and the pain and the loss that people experienced, how else are they going to get that? They want to be out and have a memory and have full service and have somebody take care of them just for an hour or two. So I'm betting big on full service coming back in, in the biggest way. And so I'm building, you know, two, which is an aggressive uh, uh, endeavor, but two of the biggest restaurants that I've ever been associated with and the the most beautiful restaurants. And I believe, part in fact, because I know $4 trillion of the stimulus is still in corporate America and has not been deployed yet, will be deployed to bring the best and the brightest to these companies – incentivize them, wine and dine them, bring them in to create commerce. I'm betting on that. And I'm also betting on that people want to forget about the tough times that they're going through currently by going out and having a beautiful experience and a meal that can really heal the heart. So that's what I'm betting on. I love that. I love that. And I'm so grateful that there are people like you that are betting on our future because we need that. 100%. We all need it. And, uh, you know, it's still still very – we're still feeling a lot of the challenges. Oh, yeah. But, you know, one of the things that I notice about you, Jeff, is your sense of gratitude. And uh, where does that come from? Um, It comes from really my mom. So I was raised by single mom. My father died when I was very young, and my mom was high school educated, worked two jobs her whole life, really had this – she had such a a charisma and charm that everybody wanted to be around her. And I believe that I got just a tiny smattering of that, but I remember her telling me, it's really how you show up. If people want to be near you and around you, you're going to have tremendous opportunity in life. And you can choose to feel great and be joyful and be grateful, or you can choose to be upset and jealous and envious and, you know, why don't I have this and why don't I have that? And, you know, she would always say, choose, choose the happier side. And so I just watched her have success through life and I wanted to always meant, you know, uh, uh, example 
you know, use her as an example in how I went about things. And, you know, from an early age, I was the hardest working person wherever I was. And, and sure enough, every place that I went, I'd get opportunity after opportunity. And I was, in my opinion, nothing more special than the next guy, except that I wanted it way more. I was the first one in, the last to leave. I would outwork. When I went to New York, it took me three and a half weeks to finally find that waiting job because it was after the crash of 87. And so all the stockbrokers were waiting tables because they could not make money in the market. And so it was hard for me to actually find that. Once I got in, I was only given one lunch shift and one dinner shift a week. Well, I got dressed every single day and went into work and begged servers that were coming in, isn't your husband on Broadway? Don't you want to go watch that show or whatever? And so I worked like 220 days straight, saved up a lot of money. But like that was just me wanting it more than anyone. I got dressed every single day as if I was going to work a shift. And I always got a shift because I got trained at multiple of their restaurants so I could wait tables at two, uh, three of them. And so I had that much more opportunity. So I would go to one. If that didn't work, I'd go to the other, have the shirt on my bike and my backpack. And, uh, and so really, you are only limited by the amount of effort you're willing to give. Great, great advice. Is is that something you teach when you're mentoring and even when you're coaching your employees it and is. providing leadership? Yeah, I, I always say dream as if whatever dream, however big that dream is, you could not fail. What, what are you going to dream? You want it all, don't you? That's how you have to dream. That's how you have to go after it. And, um, you know, I just, I was blessed to be able to do uh I just got back actually from Poland. I went to the mountains of Poland and studied with a gentleman by the name of Wim Hof. So he teaches cold exposure, breath work, and meditation. And, you know, if I would have known <laughs> what I was going to do, I would have never signed up for this. But I'm so thankful that I did because his, he's, he's changing proven science on medicine on what you can do for yourself with your breath and your meditation and the, the benefits of cold exposure. And so you're really only limited by what you want to do. I think I've heard of him. Is he the guy that goes in the caves? He's Well, like he's cold? called the Iceman. There's a yes. movie being made in Hollywood now about the story of his life. Yeah. And uh, I'm working right now with, in conjunction with the Wounded Warrior Project Charities to have him come here and do a two-day health seminar because I was just so moved and touched by him. Yeah. And I'm so excited. I want everybody that I know to kind of understand what it is he says because, you know, he kept apologizing for the entire week. There was 80 of us in this mountains of Poland. And we flew in on the 24th, the day that Putin declared say, war. Yeah. So my wife was like freaking out. She's like, "Can you don't hear bombs or anything. I was like, no, we're 350 miles away from Ukraine and we're safe here. I was worried about maybe the airspace getting shut down and me getting stuck over there, but I ended up coming out. But um, he, he basically would apologize saying, I wish this was more complex and I wish that, you know, I'm not special. I've just discovered the fact that through breath, you know, as humans, we use such a small limit of our capabilities. And breath work alone, like these deep halotropic breath that he teaches and that I'm doing every day, is tremendously enlightening and gives you so much energy. Like there's no need for any extracurricular 
stimulants. Energy, energy enhancement. Oh, no, no, no. This is all. That's what he, you know, he would joke. And he's like this little mad Dutchman, 62 years old. But he'd say, wow. you get high on your own supply. You can breathe. You get in the cold. And how he founded his method was when he was a young man, his love of his life, his wife jumped off the eighth floor of their apartment building because of her grief. She had such terrible depression and she couldn't find a way to live through that. And it, it, her grief went to him and he felt like he was drowning. And one day through, cause he was an extreme athlete, he saw this icy pond and he said, I just want to get in that. And he got in it and he discovered that he could not be sorrowful or have grief or depression or anxiety in the cold. So he went to his doctor friend and said, why is this? He goes, well, that's a fight or flight response. Your body's starting to say, okay, we are in a near death experience, you know, start cutting mm -hmm. off circulation. All fluids are rushing to your vital organs. And so he's just started studying that. And the benefits of cold exposure were insanely beneficial to your, you know, your neurovascular system. And so coupled with his breath work and meditation, he set 27 world records. I mean, he's climbed Mount Everest in shorts. Like we climbed a mountain, Rebecca, in shorts, no shirt, 8,000 feet, five hours of trekking, 18 degrees, and I was not cold one minute. And this is a Florida boy. This is a Florida boy <laughs> who I do not like cold. Well, he says the same thing. Ah, Jeff, I don't like cold either, but I'm addicted to the benefits of the cold. And I will never stop getting in the cold. So yeah. I've ordered an ice pl a, cold, a polar plunge for my backyard. It comes in at the end of May. And so right now I'm just doing cold showers. But it's amazing. Yeah. I, I all I, those tools that you can have that help you combat the limiting chatter that happens inside of our heads are such tremendously motivating skills to build. Well, the... You are certainly an inspiration well, and uh, everything. Uh, I, I, could, I could talk a lot longer. <laughs> Me too. I know you, I'll I come know, back again. Okay, That's okay. We'll, we'll do we'll part do it two. Again. This, yeah. this has just been so amazing. I have so many more questions. Before we go, uh -huh. I'd love for you to just tell us, you mentioned two new restaurants coming yes. online. When can we look for that? And okay, what, so what Boulan, do we have to look forward to? Boulon Brasserie. That's B-O-U-L-O-N. That's going to open in mid-August. And that is in the new... Jeff Vinnick, Bill Gates, Water Street Development. We're right at the front door on Channel Side and Water Street, right across from Amelie Arena, right next to the new Edition Hotel. That is a big, like, so if people know restaurants, they'll know Bafflesar or Bagatelle. It's a big, beautiful French brasserie. And so that'll open mid-August. And then Union New American, my big American concept, which is on West Shore, 1111 Northwest Shore in the uh, the old Al Austin Center. That's now called West Shore City Center. Um, that'll open up in October. And that is 6,000 square foot big uh, new American restaurant with a lot of seafood, a lot of vegetables. But it's all driven off of a live fire hearth. We have like an eight foot by five foot campfire in the kitchen. And so it's going to be beautiful. And then the top floor is private event space and a nightclub. So it's going to be like a grown-up nightclub. So, you know, we're not going to have a, a, a ton of the thumping, pounding music, but it's going to be, you can go for this beautiful meal and then just walk upstairs and enjoy an indoor, outdoor lounge that you can watch the planes coming in and have a beautiful cocktail, listen to some music, maybe have a dance with your... Uh, with your companion. And uh, so I'm excited to bring these two new concepts. Wonderful, wonderful. 
Lots to look forward yes. to. Lots You'll to be invited to. to both openings. Thank you. I'd love that. Absolutely. So as we before we close, I, yep. I have one more question to ask that I ask all my guests. Sure. And you've given us so many great ideas and so much, I think, to think about. But if you had one piece of advice that you would give to an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that be? So I've been reading a lot of studies on sleep. And the average person sleeps eight hours a night. So if you add that up over an 80-year lifespan, that's 26.6 years of your life is spent sleeping. So I sleep on best five, five and a half hours. So I've got 11 more years to live than all these people that are sleeping eight hours. So my advice to you would be find somewhere between five and eight and claim a little more life for yourself. That's my advice. That's great. That's great. Great <laughs> advice. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's about efficient sleep, right? It's Which correct. It sounds yes. like to me because you, you can get very your healthy. REM and deep sleep within that five and a half, six hours. There's no study that says you need to have eight, 10. Now, when you're, when you're precognitive and you're a child, you need much more sleep just to grow. And they'll allow your brain that time to expand and the neural pathways to start to connect. But as you get older, beyond 18, 19, 20, the amount of sleep you need can become less and less. So for me, I just love those those early morning hours when the world's not quite awake yet. I, you know, I get my workout in, I get my meditation in, my breath work, and I get ready for my day. And I feel like I've got a head start. That's great. That's great. Jeff, where can our listeners find you? So you can find me on LinkedIn, Jeff Gigante, G-I-G-A-N-T-E, and then also on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter. And so um, I'm happy to connect with everybody listening and, and follow along with the journey. We've got a lot of exciting things coming this year. It's my biggest professional uh, year of my life, and I'm, I, I'm never been more excited about elevating hospitality in the Tampa Bay area. It just keeps getting better. It does, it? <laughs> doesn't it? It really does. Well, but thank, that's a mindset. That's, that's a, a mindset. mindset. I feel the same way. That's I feel better. the same way. Jeff, thank you so much. And thanks for all you do for all of our students and all the other entrepreneurs you work with. It's my honor. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor. Factor.